Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, found on page 893. And then Matthew 26, verse 17 to 25, found on page 917 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word from Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even... Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And from Matthew 26, 17 to 25. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi? Jesus answered, You have said so. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me start with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, as we come into the space, um, we come from different experiences, different journeys in our lives, and they don't all lead in the same direction. And this morning we come as a mixture of sadness and joy, mixture of belief and unbelief, um, mixture of um, stress and peace. And we pray that, uh, that you may meet us all where we find ourselves. That we might know that we're all in the same boat, really, in one crucial way, that we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And that your story tells us that you move towards broken people. You take the brokenness and the pain and the alienation on yourself through your son Jesus. To raise us up to you. Because we can't get there ourselves. You meet messed up broken people. And you give us validity and acceptance in your presence. Speak to us through that kind of grace, all-embracing love that you give over and over to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Hmm. So, you've heard about frenemies. There's a slide. We've got a definition for a frenemy. It can refer to either an enemy pretending to be a friend or someone who really is a friend but also a rival. Um, you can go and change that definition on Wikipedia if you'd like. Um, so it's, that's interesting. It's got kind of two. This is a joint word, right? Friend and enemy. And it's got two possible ways you can go. It can be a person who really is an enemy but sort of in wolf's or sheep, sheep in wolf's clothing. Or it can be someone who's a mixture of both. You know, you've got some reasons to be usually at work is where we find these things. Um, the next slide... Uh, you know the guy on the left, Abraham Lincoln. Is he up there? Yeah, he's up there. The guy on the right, good job if you know who he is. Salmon P. Chase. You know his name from the banks that you see. Chase Bank. Um, but he's not a part of our collective memory quite as much. He was Abraham Lincoln's frenemy. Salmon P. Chase uh, was a governor of Ohio. Uh, he was contending to be the nomination for the Republican ticket for president, and Abraham Lincoln got it. And he was one of these, kind of this team of rivals, the ones who, were, who really wanted to get nominated instead of Lincoln, and, and a lot of them should have in terms of their clout and experience. But then Lincoln brings them on to the cabinet and gives them meaningful roles in his administration. Team of rivals. The book is by... Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin, I think is her name. Great book. What you find in there is that this guy, Salmon P. Chase, was like the ultimate rival, the rival among rivals. He could never let it go that he should have been, and he felt like he's, he was more qualified and would have done a better job than Abraham Lincoln. And so he was actively, while he was the Secretary of the Treasury, he was actively doing subtle things to try to undermine Lincoln so that he himself could become, hopefully in four years, people would be over it with this schmuck Lincoln and that they would want him to take on the Republican ticket in 1864. So he would go traveling the cause of the president, supposedly, but in his speeches he would kind of just subtly undermine Lincoln and, and come out in all his speeches looking like the smarter guy. Um, and Lincoln, so this is what's fascinating, Lincoln knew that. He knew it. And he didn't freak out. And he, I mean, he just continued to have this guy hold his post, and the guy did a good job. And so Lincoln didn't feel like he had to make a big deal out of it, a big confrontation or anything. And finally, when the time was right, Salmon P. Chase handed in his resignation, and Lincoln accepted it. And, and what happened next? Lincoln put his name up for chief justice. Just to, It kind of baffles how, how Lincoln did this. He just seemed to be a calm, cool, collected about having a, an opponent in his cabinet. You look at Jesus, and um, you got these 12, you know, Jesus' cabinet, in a sense, his 12 protégés, and they all seem to be pretty on board, although oftentimes you can see from the Bible, often kind of clueless as to what this was all about. But they're on board, and they're not opposing him, except there's this one guy, Judas, who was also the bookkeeper, the treasurer of, of the group, and his accounting style was one for us, one for me, one for us, one for me. And he also proactively sought to turn Jesus over and betray him for money. And so that's what 
ends up leading to him, uh, to Jesus getting arrested and killed. And Jesus doesn't seem to freak out too much about it either. The most that we get is what he said here, just kind of talking about the elephant in the room as they're about to have Passover and say, yep, one of you, yep, sure enough, it's you. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5, verse 44, that we were just reading, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a very, very difficult teaching. Especially if you have in mind right now someone who is a frenemy or even worse, an enemy. Someone in your life that fits the mold at least a little bit. If you've got that in your mind, you're locked in to this teaching. Love and pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. As I was around the Bible a lot as a child, and not everybody has that um, experience. And, and I, there's a lot of enemy talk in the Bible. There's a lot in the Psalms. There's these teachings by Jesus. And I think oftentimes I wondered as a child, where are all these enemies? Who are these enemies? You know, growing up in the 80s, is, is, is it Russia? Is it the USSR? What? Is it the basketball team across town? You know, who are... The people who don't go to church, you know, who are the, who's the enemy? I, you know, it was kind of like, are there really these bad guys out there in town? But then you, you grow up, and it doesn't take long, and if you haven't yet, you will. You'll have the experience of you, you meet some, you have someone in your life, and they just seem to be there to make your life miserable. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's that person at work who just for whatever reason, begins to get antagonistic. It's that neighbor who just decides to make life miserable for some particular neighbor. It's a teacher or a colleague who just starts being kind of oppositional and and not believing in you and working against you and maybe talking behind your back and being adversarial. And sometimes it can become tragically close to us when it's someone in our family. You know, it's that mother who... You're starting to think is clinically narcissistic or that son-in-law who's manipulative or um, that grandma who just, um, you know, just always thinks that you're, you're doing everything wrong and won't let you forget it. So it can get really close to home and then suddenly this verse, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I want to suggest that not just Jesus' teachings, but the gospel of Jesus, the good news of being connected to Jesus, um, gives us some nudges and help in three directions with this issue of our enemies and frenemies. So according to the gospel, you're less justified to hate than you think. According to the gospel, there's a bigger picture, or there's a picture that's bigger than what you can see. And according to the gospel, there's small steps you can take. First of all, according to the gospel, you're less justified to hate than you think. And now the thing about it is without the good news of Jesus, in the normal world of things, if you go down the path of bitterness towards someone who's making your life miserable, you are usually completely justified. It's a very self-justifying kind of snowballing loop because the logic is on your side and the justice is on your side. I mean, look at these emails that they wrote. It's right there, black and white. Look at what they're saying. Look at what they're doing. You know? 
listen, let me tell you exactly what they said in that meeting or exactly what they yelled at me in my, as I was driving past their house in my car. Let me tell you. That one actually was a true story from my own life. <laughs> but it's not, not going to go personal with it. It's a very, it's a very self-justifying loop that you get into with this. It's interesting. One of my new favorite verses in the Bible that I hadn't discovered before is in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and giving these teachings and warnings to this young pastor, and he says this just out of the blue. He's kind of wrapping up the letter. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our, mer- our message. Now, that, I just, that is so fast. Isn't that just so colorful? And just, you just want the story behind it? Well, you know, and it sounds a little harsh too, which is why I like to just kind of put it out there. This is, you know, okay. I mean, he's, he, he's in raw pain still from whatever this Alexander guy had been doing. He's not putting on the pious Jesus speak of, but you know, we're supposed to love him, and so I suggest you treat him lovingly. Um, it, he, he's just being raw, and he's giving a warning to this young pastor who should know he's going to face this difficulty. My guess is if you would have seen the Apostle Paul on the ground interacting with Alexander, the metal worker, you would have been impressed by his generosity, his lack of bitterness, his his actual loving kindness towards him. I can't verify that, but I can tell you why I think that would be true because Paul would have no justification and no leg to stand on to act bitter towards this guy who was opposing the gospel message because that was Paul's story. Was he had, was the chief opponent and enemy of the Christian church as it was beginning and of the gospel message. And he was going around with the legal papers in hand to arrest and have people killed. And so the Apostle Paul is this interesting character who, right in the middle of being the church's worst opponent and enemy, gets taken over, crosses sides, and is enlisted to be its champion, its, its poster child. This is Paul's story. From enemy to preacher in, like, no time at all. So... Paul has no justification to be, you know, bitter in his actions toward this guy because Paul probably had to wonder in his mind, I wonder if this guy is the next Apostle Paul. I wonder if this Alexander the metal worker is the next one that's going to get pulled over and enlisted to share the good news. And Paul's not alone in this. If you look at uh, something that the Apostle Paul wrote, actually, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Did you catch that? We were God's enemies and we were reconciled to him. That's a theology of the Christian's identity. We are all God's enemies. Do you like to think of yourself as a child of God? As we read in Matthew chapter 5, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I haven't met anyone who's said they didn't want to think of themselves as a child of God. If you're going to think that, you have to know that that rests on the fact that God adopts from the enemy camp. 
and that's every one of us. The only way you become a child of God is that you're taken over from the enemy camp and brought over. And actually, Jesus, so this is why you have zero justification to be bitter towards those who oppose you. Jesus himself, you know, there should be payback on the enemies of God. There should be. And guess what? God's son goes to the cross and receives the payback. He goes down payback alley on our behalf so that we can never face it and become children of God. That is our identity. That's our identity so much so that if you're accurately reflecting your identity, there's no way for you not to start to change your attitude towards those who oppose you. It's going to happen. Like someone said last week, we asked the question, does it seem possible to love your enemy? And someone wrote back, yes, only because Christ models it by continuing to love me despite my betraying or denying him. He is the perfect example. But according to the gospel, we also have a picture that's bigger than what you can see. And I love how this comes out in verse 45, the second part of it. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you have someone who's antagonistic in your life, there's a chance that you'll every once in a while just stop and go, if you believe in God and you think this way, that you'd say, why is God letting this person still be around? Why is God allowing them to thrive? They're even thriving on their crooked ways. What's up with that? And that's what's going on here. God is still the source of life. Why is he still sustaining them? Well, there's a bigger story. There's a bigger story that you can't see. I love how Jesus does this with us and and, and helps us to understand one angle of this is just pulling back and saying, even my biggest view of things isn't big enough to know where this is all going, where the justice, the lines of justice and payback will eventually lie. Have you ever done that with a relationship? There's uh, movies and stories that sometimes have this character who's who's bad, he's a bad guy. And, um, and yet they're allowed to live. For some reason, maybe the good guy allows them to live, even though there were all these chances to squash him. Because in the story, there's this greater wisdom that's at play of, of this. They're actually bad, they actually deserve it, but they're going to play some role in the end. And maybe someone foresees that and so allows them Lord of the Rings has this, and it's so satisfying that I'm not even going to name the character, just in case there's somebody who's about to start reading those books. I don't want to do the spoiler thing. But the idea that in the end, that character's evil will kind of culminate to do something that ends up being good, but then what always happens is that, that person gets their due, and they get wiped out in the midst of you know, whatever they end up doing. What's fascinating about that, that's, that's a bigger picture kind of view, right? And that's helpful to think that way. God's view is even bigger than that. Because you know what God might do? At the end, God might find a way to redeem them, even after all that. In his excessive grace, God might even find a way to redeem the person who's made your life miserable. God God allows himself to be viewed like a farmer who seems kind of foolishly won't let his servants go out to pull the weeds on a young crop because... 
What's the reason? He wants to wait till the harvest, it's all harvest ready, and then go out and separate them. Because if you go in early, you might pull out some of the good ones accidentally, and then they won't make it to harvest. This is our God with a bigger view, a bigger picture, grace that's being willing to be applied all the way to the end. So with that enemy or frenemy or antagonistic person in your life, have you applied a... Have you, have you asked the question, why is God letting this play out longer than I would, <laughs> right? And can you begin to admit that you actually don't see the whole picture? You don't. You can't see it. You don't know the ending. And then to be curious about what options there might be in the end. And then thirdly, according to the gospel, there's small steps you can take in verse 47. I actually really love how, because you might say, I, okay, I want to get good at love my enemy, but it seems like you just got to, like, how do you get there all of a sudden? Is there something I can practice? Is there some way I can practice at that and get better at that? It seems so out of touch. Jesus says in verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not the pagans do that? What I like about that verse is it gets down to something very small, very practical, that you can work on. Greeting people. <laughs> Greeting people as a sort of entry-level, love-your-enemies kind of task. It's a good thing to kind of end on, too. If you think about it, greetings are your only kind of contact with a large part of your world in a given day. A large part of your world, the only contact you're going to have is just a greeting. And someone put it this way, someone I read this week said, we calibrate our greetings down a very exact calculus from friend to foe. We calibrate our greetings down a very exact calculus from friend to foe. You can incredibly insightful first step. Examine your greetings. Say hello, maybe say hello, say hi more than you have been to everyone and then begin to ask yourself questions about that. How did I feel when I did that? Right? How did that feel? Uh, how fake was I when I did that? Was I hoping they'd ignore me when I greeted them? Did I make eye contact? And start asking those questions. And you're just starting to do that initial little bit of work on those people in your life. And how do you get there? And, and really that analysis of where's my heart how much of a mountain of work do I need to do to get there? Small steps, large steps, whatever it is, it's good to start it. It's good to follow Jesus. It's good to follow his lead. This Jesus who, when he was on the cross, he found a way in the final hour to redeem someone who had been an enemy of God all his life, the thief on, his cro on the cross next to him. The Jesus who, as he was also hanging there, called out to the crowd who was spitting on him and hurling insults and had put, them there, put him there and called out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Follow the lead of Jesus. And you'll be in good company. This great uh, theologian and biblical scholar and ethicist named um, Louis Smedes, he says, when you forgive someone who hurt you, you are dancing to the rhythm of the divine heartbeat. When you forgive, you are in tune with the music 
of the universe. You are riding the crest of love, the energy of the cosmos. God invented forgiveness as the only way to keep his romance with fallen humanity alive. If God did not found inside himself the power of love to forgive, there would be no future for the likes of us. But he found it. And the hope of the whole world is vested in his readiness to make a new beginning with us. A a million new beginnings, if, if they are needed. So, every time an ordinary person discovers the power to begin again in a relationship with someone who caused him needless pain, he walks in stride with the living God. Let's pray. Dear God, may we walk in stride with you. Help us. You say, be perfect as our Heavenly Father is, imperfect, is perfect. And we're not perfect. So we rely on the perfection in our place given to us by Jesus. And we look only to him to please you. And as we do that, may our identity grow. May we be strong in who we are. Children of God. Children of the great lover of enemies. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.